0: Progressive presents Adjusting to the Suburbs I never really thought about tools until I bought a house in the suburbs It's like this weird homeowner test if I need a tool for a project and don't have it and my neighbor Ted loves to give me that look when I ask to borrow a pole saw A year ago I didn't even know pole saws existed and now I gotta borrow one from Ted What is happening? What is happening? Anyway, when you save with Progressive by bundling your home and auto, that's the easy part of adjusting to the suburbs. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers.
2: Welcome to Audio Judo. I'm Matthew. And I'm Kyle. And we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network, your premier source for music podcasts. If you haven't had a chance yet to check out our spinoff podcast, Audio Judo Does Jazz, I encourage you to do so. That program, which is hosted by our show consultant, Chris, is just chock full of jazz goodness and is not to be missed especially if you are someone who maybe doesn't appreciate jazz or just has not been able to find an avenue into it yet. Uh, The most recent few are about artists that I know nothing about, Ornette Coleman and Eric Dolphy. Yeah, Uh, I'm sure I've heard the names through the years, but they meant nothing to me. Well, they do now. Uh, It's just a great musical education and some lovely wisdom along the way. Please check that out at audiojudo.com forward slash AJDJ or you can find it anywhere that podcasts are podcast you will not be disappointed i hope not anyways this week we're talking about the 1977 album the grand illusion by the american rock band and arena rock stalwarts oh, sticks
3: i am so glad you picked this album
2: i love this album that is i'm glad to hear that <laughs> i have long wanted to do a sticks album I bounced around the idea pretty much since we started this podcast. Uh, for a while, I was hung up on the album Pieces of Eight, the follow up. Which is
3: also a pretty good album. That's it's the follow up to this behind record. Me right here.
2: Right, has a place on the wall of album covers. Uh, and even for a while, I really wanted to do the 1981 release Paradise Theater. Uh, but while it's a great album, I don't think it has the legs to stand up to this one. Yeah. This album was the seventh album from the band, and it was released on July 7th. 1977. That's the seventh okay. album on 7, 7 77. Indeed. Nice bit of promotion there. Right. Uh, and this album would become their commercial breakthrough, starting off a series of albums that would all go platinum and cement their reputation for years to come. So yeah. let's talk about Stick – wait, wait. No, no, wait. We'll come back to the album. Okay. Is that what you were about to say? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, let's talk about Sticks for a while.
3: They're an American rock band from Chicago that formed in 1972, and they're known for their blend of hard rock and acoustic rock, and their theatrical influences, and their huge, over-the-top performances. Yeah. Uh, some people consider them prog rock. Huge. 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 Uh, some people consider them prog rock. Some people consider them not prog rock. Uh and honestly, I don't care either way. I think if you like them, you like them, and if you don't, you don't.
2: Uh they're a they're <laughs> a blend. They're they're a blend. So like you said, dates back to 72, but the roots of the band actually go back further than that, all the way back to 1961. Mm-hmm. Uh twin twelve-year-old brothers, Chuck and John Pinozo, who would become the bassist and drummer for Sticks, started playing music with their 14-year-old neighbor and accordion player, Dennis D. Young in the subur- uh, suburban Chicago area. They uh, would form a band called the Trade Winds and played locally.
3: And the fact that Dennis DeYoung didn't make it into sticks, still playing the accordion, kind of makes me angry.
2: <laughs> it would be better. It would the- be so great.
3: <laughs>
2: you imagine, like, Mr. Roboto on the...
3: Maybe it is the accordion. Uh,
2: and so in 65, they changed their name to TW4 after they added Tom Narditi. Uh, to get to four people, also because
3: another band called the Trade Winds had kind of become more successful. That
2: is so. true. And then the band would stay together as DeYoung went to college. And uh, when the rest of them joined him at college, they would play frat parties and the like. Uh, Nardini would leave in '69 and was placed with John Saralewski, Good, Pol- uh, good, rich Polish Chicago name. It's my, it's my kin. It's my, my people. Shortly after, lead guitarist James J.Y. Young would join, making the band a quintet. In 72, they signed a contract with Wooden Nickel Records after a talent scout spotted them performing at a Catholic church, namely St. John of the Cross, in J.Y.'s hometown. And as seems to be the case in a lot of the bands that we talk about, a name change was in order. And also, like a lot of the bands that we talk about, Styx was chosen because, according to DeYoung, it was the only name they didn't hate. <laughs> I love that quote. So many of the bands we talk about are like, I don't know. I don't hate that one. Right. I guess that's it then. This is the only one we all don't despise. What? That's it. We got to go with Butt Cheeks. <laughs> Not everybody hates Butt Cheeks. Well, that's it. That's the, that's the, the name of the band. Butt
3: Cheeks has rocketed to the top <laughs> of the charts with their hit Clap Them Together.
2: Oh, there. Nice sound effects. There nice was the Foley clap. work there. Uh, between seventy-two and seventy-four, the band released four albums: Sticks, Sticks Two, The Serpent Is Rising, and Man of Miracles. Uh, Straight-ahead rock with some proggy influences, like like we said, it's a blend. Yeah, and they were very popular in the greater Chicagoland area, but struggled to get any national footing.
3: Yeah, they had a few things. Uh, Best thing from the Sticks album charted on the Billboard Hot 100, where it stayed for six weeks. It peaked at number eighty-two. Uh, Lady, obviously, uh, from Sticks Two, got quite a bit of national radio play. Uh, two years after its release, it hit number six in the U.S. radio charts and charts, and took Sticks to a gold sales territory for Sticks Two. Right. Uh, just a side note, really quick, that I had. Uh, some people consider Lady to be the first power ballad,
2: and and Dennis DeYoung, the father of the yes. power ballad.
3: Um, there is a fantastic article called "Who Recorded the First Power Ballad." that I found when looking for this. And I'll throw a link in the show notes, or you can just go search for it. Uh, but anyway, he... Bullshit. Uh, no I'll forget I'll forget to put that <laughs> link in. Was, let's not kid ourselves. Go search for it. Uh, anyways, uh, the art, uh, the uh, writer of this article makes a pretty good point uh, that the first real power ballad is actually a song by a French uh, artist named Claude Francois from 1968 called, uh, I'm going to absolutely butcher this French name, but uh, Come de Habitude. Uh, you see
2: this face? This is me going... No.
3: Which uh, translates as, as, as usual, or as a rule, if you follow the rules of power ballads, this is technically the first one. However, he also says, if you bend those rules just slightly, the first power ballad uh, would be uh, Screamin' Jay Hawkins' 1956 hit, I Put a Spell on You.
2: Oh, that's better. And I would agree with that one. That is uh, a power ballad.
3: That is definitely a, a power ballad.
2: A bluesy power ballad. Very bluesy. And, uh, like you said, we uh, Sticks 2 got to gold status, and their next single was a complete dud. But the strength of Lady gave them the boost they needed, a national record company contract. In 75, uh, they signed their contract with a and and they released Equinox, which sold very well. Yeah. Has a minor hit on it called Lorelei. Oh, which is a great song. Uh, but cemented, but what cemented them was the correlation of the timing with the rise of the AOR format On FM stations. Uh, When they released Sweet Madam Blue, it lent itself to this rising format and gained them pretty consistent airplay. So let's take a second here. This was the format of radio of which I am most familiar with and long to hear again. It is why Sirius XM radio is almost constantly tuned to classic rewind or classic vinyl, because this is an era in which I cut my musical teeth. Mm -hmm. This is where The bands that I wanted to hear and gravitated to were played for the most part. Occasionally, and especially in the later 80s, those bands would become pop sensations as well, Bon Jovi and stuff like that. But even so, their lesser known material would sometimes become staples on the AOR format. Other than Sirius, these stations are pretty much non-existent now, partially because the format and the popularity of that type of music has waned as well. And it's a tragedy. Bands that ruled my childhood, Styx, Journey, Rush, Zeppelin, Cheap Trick, Boston, Ario Speedwagon, Deep Purple, Rainbow, are just nostalgia bands for today's kids. I grew up with a Styx poster on the wall of my basement. It was my brother's, but I saw it every day. (laughs) And I knew who they were and what they did. Other than the guy in tight white pants, they look like pretty normal guys, not rock stars. And I could relate to that. And yeah, while I know some of the music is dated, these are the bands that broke the ground for bands that kids listen to now that play arenas. These were the first; It was the heyday, and I miss it.
3: I would be curious. We should put out a call out right now. Yeah. So if any of our listeners, wherever you are in the world, have a local radio station that still sort of fits that ANR, what do you call it? It's album Style? Yeah. I yeah. guess. Uh, uh, if it's streamed online, uh, share a link. Post it on our Twitter uh, and at us. Post it on our uh, Facebook page and uh, 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 share it with everybody. I'd be curious to see how many are left and if any of them are streaming online.
2: Yeah, because w- I'd love to hear it. Yeah. Uh, so we're back to sticks anyway. Yeah. Uh, I was on a rant.
3: That's good. It's a good rant to have, though.
2: Uh, after the release of Equinox, guitarist John Surlewski left the band to spend more time with his family. And hey... The rock and roll lifestyle is not for everyone. Right. I think a lot of people that look at that move and go, how can you possibly give up the rock and roll, the fame and all of that? And you know what? It's easy. If you aren't wired for traveling by bus everywhere, for eating shitty food pretty much all the time, for sleeping in shit hotels until you make it huge and almost never being home, then I think it's easy to walk away.
3: Oh
4: yeah.
2: Um I think that uh, we'll get to
3: this later obviously, but I think that the overarching message of this whole album is that it's all an illusion anyways. Correct. The the concept of fame and and what people from the outside see as rock what rock stars are and what the reality is are two totally different stories and the reality of it is like you said, crappy food, long hours in buses and and airports and planes and hotel rooms and shit food and Probably having one suitcase with you, so wearing the same
2: clothes all the time. Yeah,
3: just it sounds miserable.
2: Uh, uh, Anyway, he was replaced by Tommy Shaw for the recording of the next record, 1976's Crystal Ball. This album was a commercial disappointment. Um, I like it though, it was a little more proggy, less straight ahead, kind of interesting. The song, (laughs) Mademoiselle. Nice pronunciation. (laughs) Mademoiselle was written and sung by Shaw. His first contribution to the band and that song would actually crack the top 40
3: there's a very interesting there are in doing the research for this there are a lot of um french connections and quebec uh, connections connection. not necessarily just the movie but uh oh. there's a lot of weird little connect- connections to things from france and quebec uh that sticks it kept coming up in my research with sticks it was very interesting to me that is weird did you and find out why for that no i oh. never could find an, an absolute answer one of the reasons may be that one of their very early big concerts their first concert i believe outside of the u.s was in montreal and apparently it was a great success mm. and they're very well loved in montreal apparently but i don't know i couldn't find like any like oh it's because one of the members of sticks had family in france or some shit, but. Mm. I don't know. It was a. It was weird, and ho- maybe somebody out there knows. If you do, drop us a line.
2: But uh, as I mentioned before, this album was released on uh, seven seventy seven seven seventy seven. It was uh, recorded in their hometown of Chicago at the Paragon, Paragon Recording Studio. It was a smash hit. Kyle, you have uh, you have the goods. I do. Peaked at number six in both the U.S. and Canada on the charts.
3: Uh, Come Sail Away, the single, reached number eight in nineteen seventy eight, and Fooling Yourself reached number twenty nine in nineteen seventy eight. It was the first triple platinum album for, six, for sticks, meaning 3 million copies sold, followed by two triple platinum albums and a double platinum album in uh, Pieces of Eight, Cornerstone, and Paradise Theater. A lot of people misquote that as saying that they had four triple platinum albums in a row because of the way it is measured. They perpetuated that. Yeah. Uh, technically, Paradise Theater is only a double platinum album. so real piece of shit there. They only sold two million copies two of it. Two million? Oh, what a hunk of garbage. <laughs> 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 but uh, uh, because of that, you know, a lot of people quote that incorrectly, but I, I thought I should definitely put that out there. But like I said a little while ago, the overarching theme of this album, The Grand Illusion, is the illusion of superstardom,
2: uh, what really separates the
3: person on the stage from the person in the audience.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that is the theme. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to get to that. I mean, I hate to just sum it up like that. Well, you did. Well, we're done. Yeah. (laughs) And episode over. Uh, It had, like you said, the numbers, phenomenal, phenomenal success for that particular style of music in 1977. It contains two hits that if you listen to classic rock radio right now, you will probably hear one or the other every day or sometimes both. Come Sail Away is an iconic piece of rock and roll majesty. It doesn't matter how many times I hear that song, it's still awesome. Yeah. Would you like to talk about the cover art? Let's do it.
3: This is, no joke, one of my favorite album covers of all time. I brought my vinyl copy of it so you can have it sitting so in front sexy. of us. The overall cover design is by uh, Chuck Beeson, uh, art direction by Roland Young, and the photographs on the back uh, by, of the band are by uh, Jim McCrary, a very well-known rock and roll photographer who I feel like has come up in an episode previously, but I could not remember which one. Um, mm,
2: yeah, I don't remember. And
3: I feel like we talked about him for something, but-
2: so the cover features a wonderful altered version of the painting, The Black Signature, mm-hmm. by Belgian surrealist René Magritte. Uh, if you don't know the name, I'm sure you have seen some of his paintings. Uh, one of the more popular paintings is of a man with a black boulder hat on it mm-hmm. with a green apple covering his face. Uh, Le Fils d'Homme. Uh-huh. Son of Man is the name of that piece. This particular painting that they used for this cover has the elements of the forest and some of the background elements as well. The painting was altered by the graphic house of Kelly and Mouse, who are Alton, Kelly, and Stanley Mouse, two of the most legendary rock and roll designers in history. They did posters and album covers for Journey, for Infinity, The Grateful Dead, including the skeleton with the zigzag papers on it, which everybody knows, and the Steve Miller Band's instantly identifiable winged horse logo from Mm -hmm. his album The Book of Dreams. Uh, under bass player Chuck Pinozo's guidance, they adapted the painting to include things from all the songs on the record, and he had this to say. He said, I thought this was a wonderful piece of art, and it was a great illusion in itself. That album was really a wonderful collaborative effort by everybody. And I love that everyone has a part, because as we will see with sticks, that is not always the case.
3: Yeah. Uh the blank signature was actually created, it was one of Magritte's last paintings. He did it in 1965. He passed away in 1967 or eight. I forget exactly which year. I'm sorry. Uh, But it was one of his last uh, very famous works. The original of it appears to be a woman riding a horse through the forest at first glance. Uh, But when you look closer, it's actually an illusion. You can see the background through the horse in some places. And there are pieces of the horse that appear both in front and behind certain trees. This is called an occlusion illusion, which is fun to say. Occlusion illusion? Occlusion illusion, uh, where your mind sort of fills in the gaps in the image. Um, the front cover reimagined version uh, for this sticks album is similar, uh, but the horse is now colored to look like something that fell out of a spirograph. Uh, and there's a giant face oh, filling man. the space where the horse's head and the woman used to be. I miss the spirograph. Right? Those were fun. <laughs> get me one of those. Uh, the lips of the giant face continue the occlusion illusion by existing in front of everything else on the front cover.
2: Ah, collusion illusion.
3: Yeah. Uh, across the top is the word sticks, and then in slightly smaller letters, the grand illusion. Uh, and the back cover continues the illusion. See what I did there? Uh, <laughs> with all five band members hiding partially behind trees. Uh, the ground below them has a bunch of rocks and sticks and things on it, and their names and credits are listed uh, along with the track listing in that area. Mm-hmm. Two other famous works that I have to mention by uh, agreed. Oh, please do. Golaconda. Which is a painting of reigning men. Uh, (laughs) It's not as sexual as it sounds. They're all wearing business suits and bowler hats. I see. And it's raining over a a bunch of houses. And something that uh, I recognize this piece of work, but if you are somebody who was born after the year 2000, you will recognize the meme of this work. It is called The Treachery of Images. Uh, sometimes called, this is not a pipe, or in French, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, ce n'est pas une pipe. Uh, it's a painting of a pipe with the words, ce n'est pas une pipe, underneath it, which literally means, this <laughs> is it's not, not a, pipe. a pipe. I had no idea it was actually called the treachery of images, which makes me love it even more. Because awesome. the treachery of images is that they are, in fact, not the thing that they are an image of. The they uh... say n'est pas... Um, pipe. Yeah, this is not a pipe. Yeah, I hope I pronounced it right. I have it written down. I just don't know if my French pronunciations
2: are, are good. Ce n'est pas. Si. No. Si, si. Ce n'est pas. Ce n'est pas. 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 pas.
3: Un pipe. Pipe. <laughs> I just know <laughs> my husband, John, speaks a little bit of French. And whenever I try to pronounce anything in French, no, no, it's meh, <laughs> meh, oh no it's blah, mia, blah, mia, mia, blah, mia. Blah, and i'm like oh i'm sorry so anyways the mama no no yeah <laughs> yeah a little condescending it, is, time it, it sounds it, a little condescending it, oh no that would be yeah
2: oh you said that wrong
3: should we uh take a break yeah let's take a break i'm sorry a me yeah
2: the short one the short mia, the,
3: mia. The short me. we'll be right back
1: venture x card from capital one gives you premium travel benefits perfect for seeing taylor swift the heiress tour presented by capital One. Oh, i do love her earn five times miles on flights and 10 times miles on hotels through capital one travel
3: enjoy your stay in suite 13.
1: whoa 13 that's taylor's lucky number the venture x card from capital one what's in your wallet
0: terms apply see capital
2: one.com for details
0: Progressive presents Adjusting to the Suburbs. I never thought about space in my cramped apartment, but in this house all I see is empty space. The sofa and ottoman look like tiny islands in a sea of hardwood floors. I could get two ottomans in the living room, but then I'd need another sofa. I could tell people I'm into minimalism. Anyway, when you save with Progressive by bundling your home and auto, that's the easy part of adjusting to the suburbs. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers.
2: So let's do a little track by track. Let's do it. First song. Grand Illusion. The title track. Is, Go ahead. Oh, I was oh, going yeah, but...
3: the name comes from a 1937 film called uh, La Grande Illusion. Once again, a French film by Jean Renoir, uh, which is a very fitting uh, mm. source for the name of this album, because La Grande Illusion is a film that is a series of interrelated episodes arranged like the scenes of a stage play, which I think fits perfectly with the layout of
2: tracks on this album. <laughs> I'd say that's pretty accurate. Right? So this is how you start a record like this. Right? Uh, one of the things that I loved about sticks from this era is their ability to play regular arena rock and mix in proggy elements and then you have these wonderful flourishes of the theatrical that influences all dennis de young vocalist and keyboardist while he was the father of the power ballad and these beautiful numbers he also brought a theatrical background to sticks even though no formal theatrical background Uh, dennis de young was born in 1947 in chicago And music was his life from a very early age. Started on the accordion, shifted to keyboards and piano later. While Styx was trying to make it during the 60s and early 70s, he was a music teacher in the southern suburbs, playing in high school auditoriums. And while the later albums of the 70s and 80s, like Paradise Theater and Kilroy Was Here, would perhaps take the concept and theatrical ideas a little too far for his fellow bandmates, it was those elements that he brought to Styx that made them so unique. He wound up driving Tommy Shaw out of the band in 1984, something that was most likely brewing for a long time. Uh, In 1989, they had reformed the band uh, without uh, Shaw and released another album. And Through the 90s, he would begin uh, dabbling in the theater with a production of Hunchback of Notre Dame, which won a bunch of awards for him. Uh, He toured again with Styx in 97 and then left for good in 99. And there's a lot of bad blood there. Uh, he has sued the band for continuing to use the name after he left, yeah. finally settling and allowing them to use it as long as he could use the, quote, music of Styx when he promoted his own shows. And the uh, animosity has continued for years. This sums it up right here. Mm-hmm. Styx has consistently maintained that any chance of a reunion with Young is unlikely. When asked about any possible reunions with De Young, James Young of Styx commented on an edition of VH1's Behind the Music television series, saying, maybe when they are playing hockey on the river Styx, <laughs> and maybe not even then. Young also addressed the reunion issue on an episode of VH1's Feuds 2000, noting the possibility of a reunion would only happen, as the Eagles said, when hell freezes over. <laughs> Bassist Chuck Pinozo, no longer actively touring with Styx due to health problems associated with his HIV positive status, offered a more hopeful tone to a writer doing a story on the band for TampaBay.com. While reflecting on the effect the loss of his fraternal twin brother John had on the band, Pinozo noted, Before any more of us die, I would hope that it could happen. Every year that it doesn't happen is another year that goes by. And if you wait too long, who will care? But in an interview, Tommy Shaw. In tw- uh, gave in 2011 indicated that he didn't think a reunion was realistic, noting, We're crazy, but we're not insane. <laughs> but when you listen to this song, there was such magic there, and you hate when ego gets in the way because this is so awesome. <laughs>
3: DeYoung told Songfacts, "Quote: The grand illusion was about look at us up here on this stage in these good lights. You kids there in the audience in the fourteenth row, you think we know stuff? We may know a little bit, but deep inside, we're all the same. And what we're doing, and what people that advertise to you on the radio, TV, and magazines are doing by creating illusions and images about how your life should be, those are just fantasies because nobody's life is like that.
2: Mm. (laughs) I have more for that. So." Big guitars, big drums, great voices. And then you take a step back, realize what the song is about. Sticks, at the time, while selling records, was getting brutalized by the media. Critics felt that this was all fluff and no substance. So what does D. Young and the band do? They paint the whole thing, the whole band, as an illusion and take a jab at the industry. So he also said in 2020, he said, I decided I would tell the fans, you know what we're selling? We're selling music. We're selling T-shirts and concert tickets. So take it for what it is. If you think we know something you don't, maybe we do, maybe we don't. And there are a lot of bands that took that same idea when they were labeled as soft or whatever, sellouts. And one of the best quotes from Kiss when they were called sellouts was by Paul Stanley, who said, yep, we sell out every single show. (laughs) And that's exactly like that you're there for commerce. Yeah. I mean, mean, if you're going to make art you probably want to sell it. That's, that's one of those things where there's
3: that weird thing where for some reason as a society, we have decided that art is important, art is fundamental, it's part of what being a human is to create and want to consume art. But for the people who are creating that art,
2: we don't want them to have anything.
3: They can't do it except for the love of the art.
2: Yeah, you don't get anything. You have to be a starving artist to survive. If you have any integrity at all, you won't make any money. Exactly. You don't want money. You want your integrity. You can't have both. You can't
3: make money off your art. You have, but to, do it, you have to do it completely for free.
2: You're probably fooling yourself, though. <gasps> I am an angry young man. You are the angry young man. <laughs> uh, this one's written by Tommy Shaw,
3: and it was originally based on Shaw's initial perceptions of de Young... Uh, who was an angry young man who viewed the group's successes with a wary eye and grew angrier, depressed with every setback. However, in later years, Shaw began to see himself in the lyrics, and the song took on a more personal
2: meaning to him. Right away, you are made completely aware of the differences between how Dennis DeYoung wrote songs for Sticks and how Tommy Shaw wrote songs for Sticks. This is Tommy Shaw's Sticks. Gone are the deeper meanings and metaphors and songs, and present are the more direct and essentially pun intended a more blue collar approach to rock and roll i see what you did there you get it yeah the blue collar man guy uh so this is radio ready rock perfect for those blue collar folks driving home from the factories in the 1970s this is midwest rock this is the rock of my youth like this
3: Now, I don't want to uh, give too much about my past away here, and I also don't really want to uh, uh, go too overboard and cause anybody else out there some uh, problems, but uh, just so you know, uh, if you take a draw from a bong, uh, until <laughs> he says, relax, take it easy, hold it in for just a second and <laughs> let it out, it is fantastic. This song is great. Ah. Uh, not that I would know, but- uh,
2: You have some experience? I Really? <laughs> Uh, Tommy Shaw, born in 53 in Montgomery, Alabama, moved to the Chicago area to pursue music after he completed high school. And it seems to me that it must have been a much different childhood than the rest of the band. All the other guys were suburban Chicagoans, and this guy is from the Deep South. And the musical influences are completely different. After Sticks disbanded in the mid-'80s, he would go on to have a mildly successful solo career. My biggest memory of Tommy Shaw was from 1988. He was opening for Rush at Jolos Arena in Detroit, Ooh. and we were merciless. <laughs> he was terrible, but he we, we didn't help as a sold-out crowd of 18,000 people booed him off of stage three songs into his set. I feel horrible now, but at the time I thought it was absolutely hilarious. <laughs> Uh the power of a crowd. Uh, Shaw would eventually uh, go on to found Damn Yankees with Ted Nugent and then come back to Styx after DeYoung left. And like you said, the song is, was written by Shaw allegedly about DeYoung. And he said this in an interview. He said, uh, in a way, that song was from me to Dennis. The seeds of discontent had started to take over on the road. The rest of us were all really happy at the time, but Dennis wasn't getting the same joy. I was trying to tell him there was a great uh, amount of stuff going on and to enjoy it more. And it was frustrating to see someone so talented and loved, but not getting more out of the experience. Whether or not he understood, I don't know, but it was fairly subtle. So Shaw would refute that in later years Hmm. and suggest that the song could also be about him because he was cynical at at times. But it's pretty clear that it's about Dennis DeYoung. Uh, Musically, it's great.
3: So I got a question yeah. for you as a drummer. Yeah. What uh what is going on with the time signature in this song? Because every single thing that's written about this song has like multiple paragraphs about the time signature changes in the song. It's all over the place. And I
2: don't understand that stuff at all. It's so. like six four and four four and then five four and then six four and then four four. It's it's kind of a mess. It's kind of uh it's kind of a little disjointed. Okay. But that kind of that kind of information is really only relevant to a drummer or a musician that really gives two shits about that. Because <laughs> so so I I'll go back to Rush because that's what I know. Fair enough, right? And there was always this conception that you know Rush wrote these very complicated songs, which they did, but essentially there was a lifeline for people because regardless of the time signature that they were playing in, you could find the beat. Okay. It wasn't like jazz, where you were trying to find where one was. You could find one without a problem, but what they did in the middle was more musically complex, but it was irrelevant if you were just listening to the song, because it's not not disjointed. Okay. So while they were adding more beats to a measure, essentially – they were coming back to the same spot. It just worked musically in a different way. Okay. But I think I think it's fairly irrelevant f- for – I mean, you're not listening to Dream Theater here. You're not trying to, like, find – <laughs> like, where the hell is the goddamn beat? I don't know. Is noise just going nuts? <laughs> and Which has its merits and is great to listen to. And a lot of the prog stuff, like a lot of uh, Genesis and uh, Marillion and uh, Camel and all these bands, very complicated – very intricate time signature work and and it's it only appeals to a very small section of of the audience who that's,
3: also happens to be the section that writes wikipedia right. article right. wikipedia articles and blog posts
2: so and- that's why you don't that's why those bands don't sell hundreds of millions of records because generally people need that lifeline they need yeah. that I want to be able to tap my foot to it and be comfortable with it and Styx was able to kind of like blend those two things together with a little bit of prog and a lot of arena rock. You're able to get away with some of this stuff underneath, and people don't really notice, hmm. except for nerds. Very interesting. Like us.
3: I was like I said, I was just super curious because it was every time I read an article about this song, it was like in the time signature, and I'm just like, oh god, again. <laughs> <laughs> skip, skip, skip. And more about the song. All right.
2: So uh song peaked at number 29 in the Billboard 100. So it was a bit of a hit, top yeah. 40. The um, song also has a darker history. Uh, on oh, yeah. May 16th, 1983, Robert Wicks, a 24-year-old New Yorker who had just been fired from his job as a teacher's aide, took hostages at Brentwood Junior High School. During the negotiations, he used the local radio station, WBLI, as his personal pulpit, having them read an angry message and then play this song, which the station did. And this was the last song that played right before he killed himself. So, thankfully, he was the only casualty of the event. It,
3: uh, th- yeah, I was about to say, thankfully, he was the only one that uh, uh, died because of this. It was a really weird – basically, he he pl- had them play a few different songs. Uh, Correct. But he – in order – what he was doing is by – You know, normally if somebody called into radio stations like if you don't play a song, I'm gonna kill somebody. Well they don't have a proof, but his thing was the opposite. If you don't play this song, if you play this song, I will release a hostage.
2: Right. And there's a bargaining chip. Yeah,
3: exactly. Which to me is is bonkers.
2: Yeah. And, And again, just as a reminder to people out there, school shootings and stuff like that are not unique and new. They have been going on for decades. The difference is it was not readily covered, or it was just in page 14 of your local newspaper, and you probably just didn't hear about it.
3: I love the uh, – the. I shouldn't say I love it, but uh, the Onion article that has to get published over and over and over again. We can't understand why this keeps happening here, says the only country in the world where this happens. And, <laughs> or something. It's something like that. I don't remember the exact title of the article, but every time there's a – a school shooting or an incident like that, they post that article again, over and over and
2: over again, and it's,
3: it's very sad every time I see it. But, so, uh, uh,
2: school shootings, total downer. Yeah. Uh, Superstars, however, total upper. It's a, another great song that is so uniquely Styx. Yes. Uh, one thing that I absolutely love about this song and sticks as a whole is the thickness and instantly recognizable sound of their background vocals. I, th- I can think of three bands – That I could pick off the radio, sheerly by the sound of the background vocals. Yeah. One is Yes. Okay. That sound is very hard to miss. Number two is Van Halen. Oh, yeah. And third is Styx. And it's such a great sound like this.
5: Short years ago, and that's
2: what I know. Co-written by James Dennis and Tommy. Yeah, a riff to this song so great. Yeah, and uh, continues the motif of the record, alluding again to someone watching the show from the fourteenth row mm-hmm. and longing to be a music superstar like his idols up on stage. Um, most of this album seems to be written from this angle, which of course is the grand illusion. Yeah, uh, and like you said, is written by. James J. Y. Young, and with help from Shaw and DeYoung, and you can hear his influences, DeYoung's influences on the keyboard parts, and the theatrical Carnival Barker part in the middle. Yeah, um, which sounds so much like an Emerson, Lake, and Palmer
3: song. <laughs> I mean, it's so obviously there was some cross oh, influence going on there. ELP.
2: I'm going to put that on my list. I don't. Yeah, think we I should do ELP. an
3: Emerson, Lake, and Palmer album at some point. Uh, weirdly, though, this one is kind of the odd man out on the A side of this album. Uh, The other three songs, you immediately recognize as stick songs and huge hits. And you can recognize this as a stick song, but you don't really hear this on the radio. You don't really hear this played other places.
2: This was supposed to be a single. Yeah. And Fooling Yourself was played instead. This was supposed to be that single, which is why it makes an appearance in part later in the record. Um, J.Y. Young the only original member of Sticks still performing in the band on a regular basis. Uh, he was born in 1949 in Calumet, Illinois, and has been playing piano and keyboard since he was five years old. He learned to play clarinet and guitar in high school and joined the band in 70, where he's finishing his degrees in electrical engineering and aerospace engineering. No dummy. Right. This is like a Brian May situation where I have a <laughs> PhD in astrophysics. Yeah, you know. And I also play guitar for Queen. Oh, well, that's rough. <laughs> Though he is referred to by the fans as the godfather of Styx. And other than two or three solo albums in the mid-80s and 90s, during the hiatuses, Styx has been his whole life. Uh, He was in a band before Styx called the Catalinas that played surf music, that won some contests in Chicago, and he traveled Europe as a result. But Styx is his his life, and uh, he's an integral part of the band. But come sail away, Kyle. Come sail away might be their
3: most famous song.
2: Oh, well, I think it. Uh, I think it's it's definitely a contender, right? It's either this or Lady, right? Oh yeah. Uh, it's the epic combined ballad and rocker. It is, in my humble opinion, one of the best rock songs ever written. I would put this in my top fifty rock songs of all time. Wow. I think if you asked me to make that list off the top of my head, I could do it, but it wouldn't be that accurate to what I truly believe. It would be just stuff that I could think of at the moment. But when you hear other stuff, you make adjustments. you would like walking by and hear the radio. and like, that is my favorite song. <laughs> this song gives me chills literally every single time I hear it. Seriously. I probably listened to this record six or seven times while getting ready for this episode. And every <laughs> single time this song came on, especially after the middle section, when the rockier part comes back with a little bit of a key change, chills every time. This song was written and sung by Dee Young, and the beginning part is very much his song. The opening section with the piano and his voice. The nice ballad part. Yeah. Have these theatrical elements that I keep coming back to, and it plays like a ballad. But the rest of the song is very much all sticks. And what's really great is this song is very dated. It is so obviously rooted in the 70s with the galactic overtones and spacey sounding synth parts. But who fucking cares? Because it is epic and wonderful and it sounds like this.
5: A gathering of angels appeared above my head.
3: And not love that right it's great and what's crazy too is this song sort of made this album in a sales perspective sure and obviously in the 70s the way that people heard music was on the radio so radio play was super super important for band successes right uh and radio stations and djs promoting a band could make or break them Uh, However, of course, it was illegal uh, to bribe or offer gifts or promotions to program directors or DJs.
2: (laughs) Now we're headed with this. Uh,
3: But that didn't stop Tommy Shaw and the band's promoter, Jim Cahill, from traveling to lots of radio stations with bags of cocaine uh, in an effort to get more radio play for this song and future Sticks songs and albums, uh, which worked. (laughs) Uh, Cahill explains on the Sticks episode of Behind the Music, quote, Program directors were like penguins since they'd follow you around if you had snow. (laughs) Uh, that blew my mind i think that i just awesome. picture them traveling around and being like having a copy of the single and a bag of cocaine and being like we would appreciate it if you'd play this and if you Wink. play
2: this you get this <laughs> oh is that cocaine
3: <laughs> i don't know what you're talking no
2: about.
3: it's the uh, full upper drawer of cocaine uh, oh that's a joke for five people <laughs> So we do it, one at a time. Uh, the radio edit of this song is only three minutes and seven seconds long, versus the album version, which is six minutes and five seconds long. Play the whole goddamn Great. thing. do it. Just play it on the radio.
2: I was talking to a friend the other day who said that his wife absolutely hates sticks. Like, really hates them. And I said, you and I can no longer be friends. <laughs> and I get, you know, when not liking a band or not getting their music or not appreciating the sound of someone's voice like those people that don't like Rush because of Geddy Lee's voice. I get that. I get it. But what could possibly be objectionable about this song? right? It's wonderful. When the guitar comes in and I'm walking the dog, I can't help but air strum those parts. Right. The <laughs> that's so freaking great. So this song is all about following your dreams by embarking on a journey into the unknown. Uh, DeYoung talked about the meaning behind this song. He said, Come Sail Away is a song about yearning to be in a better place. How do you get there? You go on a boat, on a ship, angels waving their wings as you ascend to heaven with them. Is there something going on? A starship to the stars? Are they aliens? Is it Captain Kirk? You tell me. (laughs) What a wonderful quote. I know, right? He said that he wrote the song after he was depressed, after the previous two albums sold poorly and failed to capitalize on the success of Lady. And this would certainly rectify that, as this song would eventually get to number eight, like you said mm-hmm. on the Billboard Top 100, fairly significant moment for a song that plays out like a prog piece. Yeah. One thing that kept popping up along the way for this song was the, quote, religious imagery, gathering of angels, and that somehow this song was tied up with the story of Ezekiel mm-hmm. from the Bible. Now, damn it, I've read that passage in the Bible over and over, four different versions of the Bible, (laughs) and I don't get it. Is there a gathering of angels in that part of the story? Kind of. It's not expressly said if they are angels or not. They're very descriptive, lots of bronze and lapis lazuli, uh, but I don't know. I feel like that's a stretch. I've never got that connection. And I will say there is a lot of religious imagery, but not necessarily biblical imagery. And I think those two things are separate.
3: I feel like this would be one of those things. I can't think of the guy's name right now, but the all the History Channel episodes about ancient aliens, where the guy said, the guy with the big hair, and he's he's he'd be sitting there and he'd be like, no, I don't want to say there's aliens in the Bible, but there's <laughs> aliens in the Bible. And, well, then, and then they said. would quote this, you know? Um yeah it definitely I agree i it kind of maybe I could see that being a reference, but Ugh. not as direct as everybody calls it out
2: yeah immediately everyone's like Ezekiel one to four and I'm like or one to twenty eight I'm like, okay no. and I'm reading it and I'm like Pfft. I'm not seeing it now uh this song uh, used
3: in a ton of movies uh television shows, and commercials, one of the most famous ones is uh that episode of Freaks and Geeks uh, where two of the main characters finally, cause it starts out as a ballad. It's a nice slow song. There's all these couples dancing with one another. And they, he, uh, I can't remember the character's name now, but he finally gets up the courage to ask this girl to dance and they get up and they start dancing. And then it, the rock part kicks in and immediately everybody separates and starts dancing on their own. Oh, it's a very wonderful scene. Uh, Judd Apatow, is obviously. It, is it freaks and geeks? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And Judd Apatow obviously, um, created the series and di- I think directed most of the episodes. It's only one season, one season long. So that's a that's
2: a travesty, yeah. travesty against God.
3: Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, what are you going to do? But uh, yeah, it's a great scene and it's a, uh, it's a a great use of this song. I think.
2: Mm. Miss America. I uh, thank you. I am. <laughs> oh no. The song. This song is so weird uh, because it, it seems so out of place for this record. Uh, it is a rocker of a song. It's got a great riff. It was written by J.Y. And sung by him as well. And although it sounds like he is a combination of Alice Cooper and David Bowie on this song, there's a lot of snarling and spitting on this song. And it's an outlier vocally on this record, except for the backing vocals. And while the song interpolates parts of the Miss America song Mm -hmm. in the keyboard lines and is often seen as a send-up of the pageants, it is actually... Nothing of the kind. Uh, JY uh, JY wrote this song about his wife, Susie, who suffered from a rare, incurable condition called porphyria, the same condition that plagued King George III. Uh, She is his Miss America, and he is singing about how she bravely battles the disease, especially in the line, This dream that you must live, a disease for which there is no cure. And people didn't get it, didn't understand it. And J.Y. was often cast as misogynist after this song came out, mostly due to a Rolling Stone article that said yeah. this. Miss America simply reeks of misogynistic misdirection. What Sticks thinks is a compliance with current feminist fashion turns out to be nothing more than a spiteful acquiescence to sexual bigotry and impotence. Wow. Mr. Joe Fernbacher, you know words. I Love JY's response to this
3: though. Do you have that? You go ahead. All right. He said, "Quote: I was experiencing fame for the first time myself, and I had sympathy for what every Miss America experiences—that fleeting fame." Rolling Stone was completely wide of the mark. Yes, and I think that is such a great response because it doesn't. He's not like fuck Rolling Stone. He literally is just like, no, this is what was actually going on, and I think that you are were wide of the mark. I think that's such a good
2: response. And Dennis DeYoung also retorted. And he wrote, "It's his ignorant and malicious evaluation of the song's lyrical content that enrages me." I witnessed firsthand the agony and feeling of helplessness that James uh, James Young endured. Like, take that, right? (laughs) The band is even singing "Our Love" at the end of the song as an affirmation to what the song is really about. And here's a section right here. Now that I know the context of that song, yeah. it means some something completely different, and I'll listen to it with new ears.
3: So I will tell you a really quick personal story about this. Sure. One of the favorite things that I got to do at a previous job. So I worked a previous job at a university, and uh, all the way up until 2015, they were still doing a Miss Name of the University pageant. And every time I had to work it, I felt very gross about it. But I needed a job, and I kept working it. The last year that I did that pageant, after the show, they always wanted us to play, like, a, as they're announcing the winners, they were like, oh, we want you to play this song, we want you to play, you know, they'd pick some current pop song that was, you know, some piece of crap, you know, and uh, the final year, I accidentally played this song uh, while they were, after they had announced the winner. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and I just let it roll. They were like, you know, just fade it out. And I faded it out a little bit. And while they were, thank you for coming, everybody. And in the back, Miss America. I was like, <laughs> people are like, I like this. This, yeah, is, this good. is good. Nobody called me on it either, which I was like, I am doing that every time from now on. You but should. then I got a better job and moved on.
2: Oh. So. Well, you're not. I still think about it. But you left that job, so you weren't a man in the wilderness. That's
3: true. I was not. Uh, This song written by Tommy Shaw after seeing a performance by Kansas in Detroit, your hometown. That is right. Uh, Styx is played as their opening act, and he said of the Kansas performance, quote, epic. Unlike any presentation of rock music I'd ever experienced, to go that big opened up all kinds of ideas in my mind. And the next time I was alone with my acoustic, the song more or less unfolded itself.
2: Ooh. Right? Just unfolded. (laughs)
3: <laughs> it kind of like a transformer just there's yeah, kind of, a song
2: continues loosely on the same thing uh <laughs> references to being a lonely performer in front of 10,000 people hmm. and being able to connect sensing a theme but uh, because no one really knows who he is or how he feels listen to this part right here and Kansas. You can hear so I can it hear there. a little Kansas in there. It's another one of the bands that dominated this period of AOR yeah. and one that I left out earlier and I shouldn't. But um Meh. I can hear it. Shaw kind of mixed up his feelings about being a rock star with his brother who had just been off uh been sent off mm-hmm. or not just been but he had been sent off to fight in Vietnam, and it's an interesting comparison between the two.
3: Uh, one thing I could not find, and maybe you have a clarification on this: did his his brother
2: die in Vietnam? I couldn't. I did not see that.
3: Okay, I couldn't find any information about that anywhere, and I was like, you would think one way or the other, somebody somewhere would have listed that and been like, he did or he
2: didn't. But didn't see it. I didn't either. So I'm glad. I'm glad it wasn't just me. So uh, I like this song quite a bit. However, Castle Walls. Ooh, this song. Not so much. Uh, This is by far my least favorite song on the record, although it contains some of my favorite musical performances. Uh, Bass player Chuck Pinozo shines on this song. Uh, Chuck Pinozo has spent his entire career with Styx. In 2001, he announced that he was HIV positive and has devoted a lot of his time since then to gay rights advocacy and AIDS awareness. As a result, he is more or less the part-time bass player of Styx. He shares the bass duties on the road with Ricky Phillips. (laughs) Duties. His brother, John Pinozo also plays really well on the song, and he also spent his entire career with Styx. Unfortunately, John passed away in 96 from complications of alcoholism. He was replaced in the band by Todd Sukerman, one of the most dynamic rock drummers in a long, long time. He is fantastic. This song, though... A little
3: heavy-handed, would you say? Yes. I'm very surprised that you don't like this, because I kind of feel like this
2: was a deeper step into prog rock versus everything else on this album. And I think it just doesn't fit for them. I think if some other band had done this song, I would probably like it. It just seemed out of step from the mandolin-esque keyboard parts and the lyrics like, down near the bay where the moonlit water falls i stood alone where the minstrel sang his song coming from a band that also did (laughs) fooling yourself it just it seems a little uh all right i'll give you that right and sometimes lyrics like that work but they seem largely out of place on this record this is no 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 No, 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 i can do this afterwards okay check this out
3: What I was going to say was, I definitely think this is a headphone song. This oh, yeah. Is, this isn't a driving in the car song. This isn't a throw it on in the background song. You're going to put on headphones and focus on this song to actually listen to it. Now, that being said, I kind of agree with you. It is not necessarily a good fit for this album. Might be a good fit for this band. Might not. I, I really had not thought about that.
2: But- yeah. Yeah, I do. uh <clears throat> I do. I do appreciate the headphones. Yeah. I think it, it definitely benefits from just headphones. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know if you noticed, Kyle, but in the song, there is a reference to uh, Tyres- uh, Tyresis. Tyresis, yes. The second such reference that we have covered. Hmm. Uh, last year, we did an episode about Genesis's 1973 album, Selling England by the Pound, yes. where we wove in an interview that we did with guitarist Steve Hackett. And we talked at length about the song Cinema Show, a Genesis classic, in which there is a reference to Father tyresis oh, yeah uh, he was the guy that the gods turned into a woman for seven years to see who likes sex better <laughs> uh so kind of weird that before the podcast i had no idea what the story was and now i've seen it two times yeah but it doesn't make the song any better
3: yeah I'm, uh, all right <laughs> the grand finale matthew
2: and that's exactly what it is right it's
3: a super short it's only a minute and 58 seconds but it is Literally a little piece of every song on this entire album.
2: I would say it acts as a reprise yes. for most of the album. Leads off with a, a melody from Superstars, as that song was originally intended to be the lead single. Uh, and I think it. they thought it was one of the stronger songs on here. Uh, but also uses the lyrical line, Sail Away Superstars. So there's a reference to Come Sail Away. Yeah. Before repeating the melody from the opener The Grand Illusion, all like you said, in a little less than two minutes, and it sounds like this.
3: That is such a theatrical ending yeah. to this song. They have to have used that in concert, too, as like a closer. Oh, right? yeah. Or an encore. Big. Right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Huge. And that yeah. and that closes it up into a nice, tidy 38 or so minute package. Right. Uh, it remains, to this day, one of my very favorite records from that era. And that is Sticks, Sticks' Sticks, The Grand Stick Illusion. Guy. Hey, so if you are a lot... Like a lot of people, you disagree with me and my opinions very strongly because basically I suck. So you're probably sitting in your car saying, you know, Left Overture by Kansas or Foreigners 4 is the far superior record to this one when it comes to that era." So let's talk about it. Yeah. Sign up for our Patreon and buy your way in. Kyle, how would they do that? If
3: you sign up for the Backstage Pass level, it's $20 a month. But for that $20, you get a very special personalized gift. And the chance to co-host an episode of Audio Judo on the album of your choice. That benefit can be activated only once after one year of patronage at that tier. And uh, you also get all the benefits of the previous tier. Which, if you're interested in that, it's only five bucks a month. We call it the Front Row Seats tier. Uh, and That tier includes a two-day early access to all episodes, so you get them on Wednesdays before everybody else gets them on Fridays. Uh, You also get a shout-out on a future episode as a loyal producer. Uh, Bonus mini-episodes every other week called Judo Chops that we usually do in between regular episodes. And occasional bonus content such as unedited interviews, behind-the-scenes videos, and tiny tidbits that got cut out of episodes, mostly because you can hear us opening beer cans and farting
2: and if you uh, just want to bitch to me that the album of your choosing is way better than my choice i do it all the time then you can do that on facebook at facebook.com forward slash audio judo or twitter at audio judo or instagram at audio underscore judo and if you want to send attachments to back up your claim you can send stuff to info at audio no dick pics please please other than that don't forget to check Audio Judo Does Jazz at audiojudo.com forward slash AJDJ and then continue to listen to us. And we will talk to everyone in two weeks. Take care, everybody. Bye bye.
0: But still, it's the right thing to do. So get options based on your needs with Progressive's Name Your Price tool. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and third-party insurers. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy.
4: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.